Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, September 25th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Once upon a time, uh, there was a little boy named Phineas Taylor. He was born and christened in 1810 in the small town of Bethel, Connecticut. One might say that this little boy's dreams began at his christening, for it was there that his kindly old grandfather Taylor prevented, or presented newborn Phineas with a deed, a sizable piece of land on the outskirts of town. It was a property that Grandpa referred to as Ivy Island. From Phineas's early youth, he was reminded uh, by all with whom he came in contact that he was, at this young age, a landowner. Young Phineas was the richest boy in town, his grandfather already always said, because he already owned every acre of Ivy Island, the most valuable farmland in Connecticut. Mother and father, too, uh, frequently reminded Phineas of his good fortune and said, when you become of age and inherit the property, don't forget us. He assured them that he wouldn't. When neighbors heard about his good fortune, uh, that he had inherited so large a property, they professed to fear that the boy would refuse to play with their own children. So Phineas had magnanimously said that his wealth would never go to his head. But it did. When other children's daydreams were filled with dragons and knights. Phineas's fantasies were based on the reality of his inheritance, that one day he would be lord of Ivy Island. And then in the summer of 1820, when he was just 10 years old, his father finally gave in to the endless pleas and agreed to take young Phineas to see Ivy Island for the first time. After a long journey, Dad pointed to the end of a meadow and beyond a row of tall trees reaching magnificently into the sky. Just past there, he said, is Ivy Island. Well, Phineas, overcome with anticipation, ran ahead of his father past the meadow to the row of the stately trees beyond. And what he saw stopped him in his tracks. Ivy Island, described by his grandfather as the most valuable farm in Connecticut, was in reality five acres of worthless, snake-infested swampland. And the stunned 10-year-old boy stood there, continuing to gaze upon the shattering dematerialization of his dreams. His father and the hired hand that had come along with them roared in laughter. For years, Phineas had been the laughingstock of his family and neighborhood, and he hadn't a clue until that exact moment. It was the largest and most protracted practical joke that Grandfather Taylor had ever pulled off on anyone. But 10-year-old Phineas wasn't laughing. And although he eventually forgave, he never forgot. In fact, that one humiliating joke shaped the rest of Phineas's life. He became the ultimate con artist, a man determined to prove that the world is full of fools. By the way, did I happen to mention Phineas Taylor's last name? It was Barnum, P.T. Barnum, master of the greatest show on earth who boldly proclaimed, there's a sucker born every minute, all because of that worthless patch of soggy real estate 
and a 10-year practical joke. And now you know the rest of the story. Isn't it interesting how a single moment in time can shape one's future? Welcome to the third week in our sermon series entitled Waiting on God. And today we'll see how another defining moment in the life of a young man shaped his future, but in a very different way than it did P.T. Barnum. We've been looking at the divinely challenging task of waiting, especially when it comes to waiting on God or waiting through our faith journeys. When I arrived as your pastor a little over a year ago, one of the topics that kept coming up over and over again was our 15 acres of property on 25th Street West. And no, it is not swampland, but I think a few snakes have probably traveled across there over the years. Close to two decades ago, God gave a vision to the leaders of this church of where God wanted us to go and grow as a church. And now, in the year of our Lord, 2016, we are still waiting for that to come to fruition. Beyond just the church, we also have other areas where we wait in our own lives, don't we? For the first two weeks of this series, we spent time with Moses and the Israelites and their four decades of waiting to get into the promised land, a land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These next two weeks, we'll spend time with David, one of the more amazing epic stories in all of Scripture. And we'll just really be scratching the surface of the complexity of this man who the Bible says is one after God's own heart. But I encourage you, if you want uh, a great read, to, to look up First and Second Samuel. Our story today begins at First Samuel 16 in the very first verse. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, a little backstory is helpful here. After the Israelites finally made it into the promised land, they lived uh, as an association of 12 tribes, each from their ancestral heritage. God was considered their king and ruler. There was the Ark of the Covenant that held the Ten Commandments and Son of the Manna, and it was sort of seen as God's resting place. It would travel from tribe to tribe. But God was the king and ruler. But as they associated with the nearby countries, the Israelites began longing for a flesh-and-blood king, like everyone else had. So God relented, and the first king that was chosen was King Saul. King Saul came from the northern part of Israel. Samuel was the priest at the time, sort of like the nation's pastor, and he had anointed Saul, but Saul did not live up to the expectations that either Samuel or God had for him. So God decided on a do-over. Scripture says that he took his spirit away from Saul and was ready to anoint a new king. And that's where our scripture passage comes today. God has given Samuel a task to go to this little town called Bethlehem and find the new king that I am going to be having you anoint. And so his divine GPS took him there to the house of Jesse. Uh, he's a little bit worried, Samuel, about this task because you see King, King Saul has not decided that his reign is over. He's not interested in having another king come and fill in the space. So uh, Samuel fears that if Saul finds out that he's on this king-making mission, it will be his demise. God says, just go and make an offering and invite Jesse's family to be a part of that. And God said, I'll fill you in as you go. I'll give you what you need to know as you go along. So that's exactly what 
Samuel did. Verse 6. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab, the oldest of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. Because sometimes you just know, don't you? I mean, you see something or someone you know in your heart that this is the moment This is the person. This is the experience that God has been preparing you for. I mean, that's how Samuel felt when he saw the oldest son of Jesse. If anyone was going to be a king, it would have to be this guy. Because Samuel was all about knowing, right, and hearing from God. And and so he placed all of his chips on the oldest son. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so maybe first impressions aren't 100% accurate all the time, right? Uh, And yet, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because God looks on our hearts. God sees what others can't see. God sees what maybe we can't even see in ourselves. God doesn't get caught up in outward appearances. And Lord knows we live in a world where that is so important. And then the parade of sons take place. Eliab's already been dismissed. Next up, Abinadab. Nope. Shammah. Nope. Four other sons pass. Samuel gets the same word. Nope, 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 and nope. And each time, God tells him, this is not the Lord's anointed. And Samuel's beginning to wonder... Could there be another Jesse that lives in Bethlehem? Did I get the wrong address? Well, it turns out that Jesse didn't have all of his sons there. Uh, Despite seven being a biblical number of perfection, it turns out there was an eighth son, the youngest, uh, but he was out doing the chores. Uh, As Sharon was reading, I was following on my phone in the message translation, and the message Bible says, there's one, but he's the runt of the family. Yeah. When you're the youngest of eight sons, you will always be known as the baby. And shepherding was about as low a job as you can get when it comes to the family chores. Samuel, though, insists that you bring the runt, too. I need to see all of your boys. Verse 12. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Some scholars believe that the expression beautiful eyes really refers to his youthful inexperience. That he hasn't seen much of life yet. He wasn't ready for the honor to do what he was about to be called to do. Nevertheless, Samuel clearly senses David is the one that God sent him to anoint. To be the next king of Israel. Everything must have changed for David from that point forward. Can you imagine as a young person, a teenager... Having that experience, the priest of the whole nation comes and anoints you with oil and speaks words about your future and about ruling, and his head must have been spinning. One of the two books that I spent a lot of time with this week as I prepared for this message is Rob Brendel's book, In the Meantime. The subtitle is The Practice of Proactive Waiting. 
Brindle's book is all about the waiting that David endured and how it connects to our lives as Christians. I love how he frames what it must have been like for David immediately following that experience with Samuel. He writes this. As David lay on his bed that night, he probably assumed that the next day he would get a visit from the members of the king's court who would load him into a gold-crested chariot and take him to the royal palace. Because once you've seen the fairy godmother, you kind of expect the pumpkin to get turned into a carriage, right? Well, we don't know exactly how old David was at this point in the story. Young enough to have been forgotten by the rest of his family when the prophet came, or at least young enough to have been considered of no significance. But as I mentioned before, Israel already had a king, King Saul. King Saul was not looking to give up his throne. It would be decades before David actually became the second king of Israel, which would have been helpful information if Samuel would have passed that along, but he didn't say anything about that. So David has this life-changing experience one afternoon and then goes about the long and difficult period of waiting for that promise to come to fruition. Before we get any further into the David story, I want to bring us to another passage in the Old Testament from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was written during a very difficult time in Israel. It took place many, many, many years after David had come and gone as the second king. It was at a time when the people of Israel had strayed so far away from following the Lord that God allowed their a foreign entity to come in and destroy almost everything, the capital, the temple, and take some of the best and brightest away. Into exile, 700 miles away into the land of Babylon. It's disorienting anytime you move. But to be forced to move, to leave your homeland, some even forced to leave their families, And to start all over for who knows how long, this is what the people of Israel were experiencing. And God sends a word through Jeremiah to those in exile. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, starting at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, to all the exiles, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, they don't know how long they're going to be there. They didn't get a note that's saying it's just going to be for 70 years. I mean, 70 years is a long time. They just knew that they were being taken away from their homeland into a foreign country. And in the meantime, God gives them these life instructions, which basically amount to uh, keep living life. Right? Keep Doing what you normally do. Be proactive. Go through the daily routines of your life. Not only that, but seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you. How hard must that have been? To be so filled with anger and bitter and resentment, God now is calling you to pray for this city, to do the things that you would do if you were living in a place of your choice and you wanted the best for the city and its leaders. Now, we need to be aware that David was such a powerful character in history that many different stories grew up around him and were remembered with great reverence. Sometimes these accounts in 1 and 2 Samuel seem to contradict each other. But the editors of Scripture were so respectful of David's heritage that they included several divergent 
uh, traditions with little attempt to harmonize them. In fact, David is introduced in the story no less than three different times. Each time it seems like we're meeting him for the first time. The very first one is the story that we read today. So why am I telling you this? What does it have to do with Jeremiah 29? Well, when Samuel returned to Ramah after that anointing, life just continued for David the way it always had. Well, sort of. He, he didn't get picked up by any gold-crested chariots. He wasn't admitted into the Junior King Internship Program. He just kept living his life one day at a time. Here's some of the jobs that David had after being anointed by Samuel. We know that he was a family shepherd. He continued to do that, which meant not only watching over the sheep, but protecting them against lions and bears and other predators, which taught him how to fight. Sometimes after Samuel left Bethlehem, King Saul was looking for a, a, a musician to come and play for him to soothe his spirit. He was tormented. And David was the one that was chosen to go and do that. And as that time that he honed his craft in music, out of that came many of the Psalms that we have in Scripture, the prayer book of the Old Testament. During his time, he also became Saul's armor bearer. So not only did he have to hold the weapons and the protection that Saul would use, but it also meant he would learn about arms, armaments, training maneuvers, and he would be in on the strategy sessions. In another story in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel reveals that David was a courier for his father. He was taking supplies to uh, his older brothers who were in the army, King Saul's army, which meant he could follow orders, uh, that he could humble himself to do this. And he also got put in front of Goliath. When the rest of the the army was afraid, David stepped up and became an overnight hero. After besting Goliath, King, King Saul made David a military commander. And the narrators tell us that not only was David extremely successful, but these uh, David fan clubs started sprouting up all over Israel. Everywhere he went, they would be singing songs to him. Shepherd, courier, musician, armor bearer, military commander. None of these are king of Israel, right? In fact, the king of Israel probably wouldn't have any of those types of jobs in his job description, yet I dare say that every one of them contributed to who David was becoming as God's anointed. Each job, even the seemingly insignificant ones, helped shape David and cultivate the sense of who God was calling him and who God needed him to be. That's what happens when we surrender our lives to God. We go about living our lives just one day at a time, and we take whatever experiences and opportunities come our way, not being resentful about, well, Really, we should be doing this. No, accepting what comes and seeing how we can learn from it. What God can teach us at this moment in our life, even if it's different from where we thought we should be. Now, before I wrap up today, I want to share with you the other book that I was spending time with this week. And this book completely messed me up in the best way. It's a short book. You can read it in just a little over an hour. Gene Edwards is A Tale of Three Kings. It is an amazing book. The subtitle is A Study in Brokenness. And his main premise is that David wasn't ushered, wasn't anointed into the lineage of royalty when Samuel came that day. No, he was enrolled into God's school of brokenness. 
Edwards lays out how Saul felt threatened by David, as kings often do when young, uh, popular, promising individuals seem to rise up beneath them. Saul didn't know about Samuel's anointing of David years before. He didn't know if David would try to take over the throne and force himself as king. That was one of the questions that drove him mad. There are very few students in God's sacred school of brokenness and submission, writes Edwards, because all students in this school must suffer much pain. He writes, David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush him. It's kind of disturbing to read that, isn't it? The story that precipitates the start of David's crushing from Saul comes in chapter 18, beginning at verse 10. After returning from uh, battle, again victorious, very successful, King Saul begins to get very jealous about David. 18, verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Edwards has a wonderful take on this spear-throwing incident. He starts by asking, what do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Well, conventional wisdom says you wrench it out of the wall and you throw it back, right? By doing this, you'll prove many things, that you're courageous, that you stand for the right, that you boldly stand against the wrong, that you're tough and you cannot be pushed around, that you will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment, that you're the defender of faith, the keeper of the flame, the defender of all heresy, because when you throw back spears, you tell the world that you will not be wronged. And all of these things, Edward says, proves that you are a candidate for the kingship, except... It's the kingship after King Saul. Instead of throwing spears back, however, David dodges spears. How did he do that? Three simple steps, Edward says. First, pretend you cannot see the spears, even when they're thrown directly at you. Second, learn to duck very quickly. And three, pretend nothing happened. That may be the hardest of all. You can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear, writes Edwards, because they turn a deep shade of bitter. I love that. You can tell when someone's been hit by spears because they turn a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Edward writes, gradually he learned a a very well-kept secret. Three things that prevented him from being hit. One, never learn anything about the fashionable, easily mastered art of spear throwing. Two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. Three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you, even when they pierce your heart. Hmm. It's not just David that has to face spears in life, right? We've all had those people that have attacked us. Opportunities in work that didn't go the way we expected. Relationships that turned south. Where the book really had power for me was when Edwards began to say that we all have a bit of King Saul inside us. Even David did. 
David the shepherder would have grown up to become King Saul II, except that God cut away that King Saul part of his heart. That operation, by the way, took years and was a brutalizing experiment that almost killed the patient. And, are you ready for this? The scalpel and the tools that God used to remove the King Saul portion of David's heart was King Saul himself. That was the tool. By the time it was over, David was barely recognizable. Soon David would have to flee the kingdom... He became a fugitive on the run. He would be on the run for years. It was all part of this brokenness, this breaking plan that God had for David. It's an uncomfortable story to hear it in this vein, isn't it? It should make us uncomfortable. Nobody likes to be broken or crushed, and yet it may very well be the only way that we root out the King Saul part of each of our hearts. David was the one who was a man after God's own heart, not Saul. But it took many, many years and many different experiences for David to get to that point. Now, the temptation, of course, is to help the process along, right? Nobody likes to wait. We want to shorten the waiting time, if you will, so that we can get to the big picture, get to the promise, get to where it is that God was calling and leading us to do. And David will be tempted to do this many times. We're going to go into more detail next week. And we know where that's going, right? We all want to help God along. When we've prayed and prayed and prayed for something, but it seems as though God wasn't listening, or at least not responding in the timely manner. Or when we know that God is leading us in a certain direction, like our property on 25th Street, and yet the progress has been so slow. Or when a relationship, maybe in our own family even, isn't where we want it to be, and so we try to force it into something new, but it's not at God's timing. The second movie in the original Star Wars trilogy uh, is one of my favorites, The Empire Strikes Back. In the film, Luke Skywalker is being trained by the Jedi Master Yoda on the planet of Dagobah, and during the training, Luke has this vision that his friends are in danger. So he presses Yoda to allow him to leave, even though his training is not done, so that he can assume the role of a Jedi Master or a Jedi Knight sooner rather than later. Let's see how it plays out. Due to copyright restrictions, we cannot play this scene on our podcast, but invite you to go back to the movie and watch it again for yourself. Waiting is hard, friends. We all know that. And there will be many times that we want to help in that period of waiting, even if it's waiting that God has ordained for us. But abandoning our periods of waiting amount to taking the quick and easy path, and we may not be ready to face what lies ahead of us. King Saul was indeed the dark side for David. But God knew that in order for David to truly be a man after his own heart, he still had more training to do in the school of brokenness so that he might endure. Our challenge for the week ahead is to prayerfully reflect on this story and to see how God might be wanting to remove that King Saul part of our hearts as well. Brothers and sisters, it takes time. Sometimes it even takes a lifetime. Let us not be too quick to avoid these seasons of waiting, for God indeed knows what God is doing, and may we trust Him. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.